Would you turn in your Bible, please, to the book of John, John chapter 3. I know that I have said this more than once over the years, but I'm always astounded at the Word of God, wherein <clears throat> we can look at Scripture and we perhaps have taught on the Scripture over and over and over and over again and seen many, many great and deep things. And then the Spirit will guide us back to that Scripture and show us an astounding, deep well of understanding that we had not seen to that point. And such is the case in a rhema for us in John 3, verse 30. We could quote this, but um, I think just for the purists who may be watching, it would be good for us to read it. He must increase, but I must decrease. These are a description of what John the Baptist would be in his ministry, and this is a description of what the friend of the bridegroom would be, and we extrapolate that this is a description of what the Elijahs are supposed to be, because if you remember, Jesus clearly identified that John was fulfilling that personification of Elijah. And we, we read that in many of our studies in the Scripture. Um, we focused upon how that for us to decrease, we have to become whatever God would require of us. And that's, that's the measure of decrease. It's not just getting smaller. Uh, being small doesn't mean that you can um, you can become what is necessary for the task. Decrease is to become whatever God requires of you as he is bringing forth harvest, as he is developing his plan, as he is expanding. We must become what we're to be in his timetable uh, commensurate with what is needed. Now, what is so important about our discussion today focuses on this word which is translated as must, M-U-S-T in the English, and it comes out of the Greek word dea, which is D-E-I. And <clears throat> as I was, um, I'll just be real honest with you here. I woke up really, really early this morning. You're tired of hearing that. And so I set up my little place in the dark to, to pray and to study. And as I pulled up my, uh, my Bible program, there was a little thing that flashed and said, the Women's World Cup currently on. So I put that on a screen and watched England lose to Spain, won nothing in that game. But as I was, as I was getting all ready uh, to to study, I had this screen going on over here, and I was praying in the Spirit. Um, the Lord had me look at the word must, and I, I thought, well, Father, you know, we've talked about friend of the bridegroom, we've talked about Elijah, we've talked about increase, we've talked about decrease. Must is just kind of a throw in there, you know. That, that was my initial thought. But as I looked at must, I recognize that that three-letter word was very important in the Greek culture. In fact, they used this word to describe what they believed was fate, F-A-T-E, not faith, but fate. And in the Greek mindset, uh, the mythology of Greece, fate was a, a threefold uh, divine uh, influence, three, three women that controlled fate. One would indicate how you were formed in the womb and the fact that you would have life. The second would be what would constitute life on earth, and the third would be when you were going to die. And so for them, <clears throat> fate was very much 
reliant upon the will of what they believed were the gods. And it was your purpose on life, why you were here, what you were to do, and how you were uh, going to <clears throat> have your tenure upon this earth, which would end at some predetermined point. That's what they believed DEI meant in the Greek language. And so the scriptures, uh, which are written in, in ancient Greek, use this term. The divine author used this term. And it's very interesting that um, so many of the ways this term is used, and, and you, I would ask you, don't do it right now, but this week, <clears throat> go through, a, um, go through a, a devotional where you study the various places where the Spirit uses this word, and you're going to find some very interesting things, like this is what Jesus used to describe his devotion to fulfilling the will of the Father. This is what Jesus said, as Monica referenced today from Shekhar and Proskuneo. This was in John 4 when the woman at the well comes and they have this big discussion of what the Father is looking for and how that the Father wants worship. It must be this. This is, this is interesting. His sacrifice at Calvary um, uh, in Jerusalem um, was a must. Uh, and <clears throat> so on. There are so many specific places where the the Holy Spirit uses this word to describe something that is uh, a necessity on behalf of the will of the Father. So, of course, we don't believe in fate. What we believe in is that we are put here on earth from the, from the foundation of the world. We're in God's thoughts and in his heart. And he has ordained for us to live now, and we need to live that purpose before the Father. It's the most important thing that we can do, and it's appointed unto men and women once to die, and then we uh, will be um, evaluated, I, I'd say judged, but I'll say it in this pristine, in this pristine environment, that we're going to be evaluated as what we've done on behalf of God's purpose for us. And so that's the viewpoint of what must means in, in the New Testament. It's also interesting, and we'll end this Greek language study in just one second, and we'll get on with what we're supposed to talk about. The root of DEI is deo, deo, which is what bind is. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And, and so we determine that what our mission is for God, as we must decrease, um, is that it's in alignment with the authority of God's eternal purpose, and that release of power that we have is based on his purpose. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Uh, it's not just you knowing all the right scriptures or attending the right conferences so that you know how to declare, decree, and bind. It is a, it is a factor of what God has put you on this earth to do. What is your authority from him according to your assignment? Because in, in, as we've studied from the very first point, I remember one day we were laying, all of us, in prayer in those early days, and I heard a voice say to me, the two most important things on, on this earth is your relationship with God and the authority that he grants through that relationship. And we knew then, and I thought about it, and then it was reiterated, everything in the spirit realm, is relationship and authority. And we've said that over and over again, haven't we? And so if we're going to be commissioned by God to do something as a friend of the bridegroom, as in Elijah, we need to recognize that our course is predestined, preordained by God. And we function in that regard to fulfill the will of the Father and our authority in binding or loosing comes from that. One other thing about this, in, in Revelation 1.1, you don't have to look there, this word must, and another word that comes from that, it, both of those words are used, and that is a word that is regularly uh, translated as show, S-H-E-W in, in English, in Old English. 
And you, you see that that word, which would be another good study for you, is used in some very important and strategic passages of Scripture because it, 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 it depicts what is seen on behalf of what God has ordained and what authority has been granted. For instance, in the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, Satan took Jesus into an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and the glory within them. Here is that word show. And the enemy wasn't just saying, hey, look at this neat thing I have. You can see everything from up here. It was, I have an authority. To, what he was saying was, I have an authority over these things, which is what he extrapolated out. Uh, it's, my, it's in my purview to grant this to you right now if you will proskuneo. Very interesting that in the showing of the world and proskuneo and the Father's will, all three of those things were in that one factor of temptation. But those three things we don't often look at, but it's threaded throughout the Scripture. So what is that in Revelation 1.1? It's again saying that all the things that the Father wants to do is, is go, are going to be done. And it's that book that is going to show how this is all going to end up. So interesting. So as I said, if, if you will study this in your devotion, it's a very easy thing to do. Just go to this verse, John 3.30, I must decrease. Um, it, you click on must and just look everywhere that word is used. And it's not 5,000 times. And insert this understanding, and you will find that in those strategic verses, it illuminates a new dimension of understanding of those verses because it has to do with why we're here, what God has given us to be. Now, how does this fit then with who John was, friend of the bridegroom, and what Jesus said? You know, one of those dudes asked him, hey, doesn't it say Elijah's coming? And he said, well, Elijah has come, and he points to the friend of the bridegroom. So for us as Elijah's, for friends of the bridegroom, as saints, we have a very interesting, um, a very interesting responsibility. We must decrease as God is, is increasing. Um, I, I, I also think about that prophetic role, about how that the spirit of prophecy is knowing how to marturia, to know, knowing how to die, the martyria of Jesus. What was the martyria of Jesus? To, I must do the will of him who sent me. So, you know, it's not just walking around in sackcloth and ashes and everybody saying, man, what a prophet they must be. Look at them. No, a prophet without an identity of serving the Father is probably a false prophet or somebody that's just playing around with it. For, for Elijah, John the Baptist, the greatest prophet born to women, Jesus said. What was that? It was this whole depiction of must. Uh, he is going to increase. He's going to continue to develop and expand upon what he has wanted from the foundation of the world. And for me to serve that, I must become whatever he needs me to be. That's the heart of Elijah. That's the heart of, of what we as friends of the bridegroom must be. And that's a difficult thing to do because it smacks against what society wants. You know, in the society we live in today, everybody wants what is theirs, their truth, their identity. And, and, and they want to change everything else to conform to what they think they are. If you think you're a dog, well, then you're a dog. There's probably a couple societies that are now for those who have transitioned to dogs. We don't know, but it's probably coming. Um, but, you know, the point, though, is that it's, it's, it's a real art to being an Elijah that then will welcome Elisha's. And knowing that the Elisha's then 
<laughs> will, will have to become that same thing for those that come later. I was reading this past week, and I, I know it's probably um, because of what the Lord was going to direct me to, to share with you this morning about someone who was well-known when I was a kid, Leonard, Leonard Bernstein, who was a very famous composer, symphony conductor. And somebody asked him one time, one time uh, what's the most difficult uh, position in your orchestra to fill? And without hesitation, he said, someone who's willing to play second fiddle. He said, I have no problem having, uh, finding hundreds of people who want to play first violin. But the role of the, of the second violin is the most important in the orchestra. Because without that, nothing else works. And he said, it's difficult to find somebody who embraces that role and does it in a way on behalf of what the orchestra needs. And you think about that in any walk of life. You know, Jesus said, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. Servant of all. And you think about it in every walk of life. Any championship team is not just the stars. It's those players that will accept their role, dare I say, no matter how talented they are, no matter how much money they make, as a second fiddle. And sometimes you see extreme all-pro players who come toward the end of their career and they say, you know, I've got money, I've been on these all-star teams, but I've never won a championship. And I'm willing to go on this team over here and play a, uh, an auxiliary role so that I can get that championship. You've got to be able to have that. And I, I thought, you know, sometimes people I remember years ago, some, there were some that would embrace the role of Joshua. And Joshua was important, but why were, why were they wanting to be Joshua? Because they liked to battle, or because they thought, well, I know Joshua, one day Moses is going to be gone, then I'll be in control. I think that's probably what their motive was. Everybody wants to be perceived as the top. But <laughs> second, second fiddle to God is what our mindset would be. We're not prima donnas. We have to decrease. We must decrease, just as Jesus must fulfill the will of the Father. And that is a role that really you and I have been being asked to serve God in from the very beginning. Our first taste of that was to lay our stuff down, as Monica referenced this morning, the, the great purge when we were first beginning. And then almost immediately, we, we begin to intercede. Not our will, but thine be done. We're going to pray these mysteries in tongues and diversities of tongues so that we can fulfill, serve God as an intercessor to see his will fulfilled. Not our will, but his. And then immediately he starts teaching us things. For what purpose? To go and make disciples. To go and sow into these nations and these places that God continues to open. We're not building our own kingdom here. That has never... If you put a stamp on this place, and I'm not speaking to all the other Saints Network churches, I'm sure the same thing has happened to you. But it's, it's that we, you, will serve others. That doesn't mean in a soup kitchen, even though that's great. But that means packing up your bags, going to some other country, meeting people you've never met before, showing them the things, hopefully patterning the things that the Father has given you to give. Why? So that they then can serve in this way. That's Elijah. That's must. The operative term is must because it lines up in that mindset of serving the divine will, of serving the divine dictates, of doing exactly what needs to be done to fulfill why you're here on earth for the time you have. And if you will, in that, become whatever is necessary for him as he develops the must. That's so interesting. Don't you think? It's just so fascinating. And so then you have Elijah, John, as a friend of the bridegroom, which is what you and I are supposed to be doing. 
And this isn't a, a study on Jewish matrimonial um, laws or, or, or maxims, but the friend of the bridegroom was basically in charge for the, for the groom. Um, they had authority to represent what needed to be where and when so that everything was in place and taken care of so that he might come and so that the bride might meet with him. What is the bride of Christ? Remember from John, it's not some fanciful picture of a woman in a big gown. You know, remember in, in Revelation, it says, uh, the, the angel says, let me show you the bride of Christ. And boom, it's the new Jerusalem coming down. What the Father has for you and me, that's our brideship role. And so in so many ways, we are preparing for the groom to meet the bride. We are, we are interceding for that. We are learning the principles of the kingdom of how that is supposed to function in the millennium and, and in, in, on behalf of what the, uh, the eternal will of the Father was. That's, that's what we're doing. We are, we are preparing people to be what the Father needs them to be. And, and I just think that's, that is so fascinating. So in, in uh, Malachi, the last chapter of Malachi, it says that Elijah is going to come in the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. This, this whole business of uh, will our hearts, will the steering wheel of our life confer, conform to what the Father's will is? And what has gone on before us, leading to this point, the shoulders of those giants that we stand upon, will, will our heart be directed toward the Father as he then directs his toward us? But, you know, as, as wonderful as that is and as a privilege as that is, it's all recognizing that we are second fiddle. We're precious in his sight, but he will always be the great soloist. He will always be. Even Jesus depicted that. And that's the heart of prophecy. It's dying to self, dying to what you would be as, I said this before, as a prima donna. Does, why doesn't everybody see me? Why am I not up there? Well, I'm smarter. I'm more beautiful. I'm this. I'm that. And, you know, you become as nothing. You humble yourself. God exalts the humble. He, he exalts the meek. And, and it's all about will you, must you decrease? Well, I think it's, it's also very interesting that, you know, that, and this is, a, this is something, I'm I, I, I just thinking these things, so I have to say them. Uh, you think about this, this wedding, and the two main the two main, other than the bride and the, and the groom, the two main groups that we read about in Scripture are, is the friend of the bridegroom and then those infamous ten virgins. You know, those are the two main groups. And we won't even talk about why Jesus began his earthly ministry with the miracle of the water, the wine, and that wedding feast at Cana. That's another, that's another thing. But, you know, the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, this Elijah-like ministry, this must decrease, is so important. But, and you know, those three facets of the Jewish weddings where you have the original agreement and then you have, you have the, the exchange of the betrothed and then you have the big feast at the, at the groom's house, which is what those virgins were, were preparing for. Um, you, you know those three things have a factor in what we're doing. But the ten virgins, to me, really represent um, those that Elijah would teach. You know, ten represents the law. Ten represents the things we've learned the, from God and those things that we must do. 
and virgins speak for itself. You know, Paul spoke about how we need to be chaste virgins or saintly. Remember that study? Saintly virgins, where we're, we're willing to become enlivened again to, to embrace what God wants. But the ten there are waiting in the night. It's not like the five foolish ones who decided to be moros. They don't want to participate in the mysterion anymore. It's not like they ran out of oil. Jesus clearly said in Matthew that they took no oil with them. And they were going through the, the darker parts of the evening leading up to midnight, which speaks of the beginning of the new day and speaks of the sequence of dreams. And, and there they were. They were not prepared to offer themselves in the way that they should. But five speak of how you are appropriating what God is telling you to do, the fivefold ministry. And five of them thought, well, we better do it in the way that we've been taught. And five of them thought, I'm just going to do it whatever way I want to, which is essentially what they did. And, and so you, you see the friend of the bridegroom who's busy getting things ready, and you see these little virgins that uh, have lamps, and they're, they're going to welcome the, the fulfillment of this threefold process of the wedding and, you know, for, for us, I see us as friends of the bridegroom teaching those that need to <laughs> be ready in the night. And we're coming into the night when no man can work. We, we're teaching them the ways of God and the mindset of God and that they need to be sensitive to him to keep that lamp burning. Because that, another thing I read recently was that in those Jewish feasts, there were, uh, for weddings, there, just like there are today, there have been movies made about this, there were wedding crashers, you know? Hey, there's a free feast over here. And one of the ways that you knew who was supposed to be there was with these young girls, these lamps, which is why when the five came and they didn't have lamps that were lit, the guy says, I don't know you, you know, you can't come in here. Um, you know, your preparation and your willingness to submit yourself to the teaching, the principles of God, and your willingness then to do them in the way that he says, not the way you think, which is five and five. Um, we, we have a responsibility to teach those ones that would be as chaste virgins the principles of the word that are musts for us as Elijah's, and which would then teach the Elishas. But we can't make them do what they're going to do. We, we can't make them process the way they should. Um, and um, I just think that's interesting. And then another thing that we're going to be speaking about here at our seminar, uh, and I'm not really sure how all this is going to play out or when it's going to be, is, you know, we, we talked about trees of righteousness and we've, there are all kinds of different trees in the Bible, and some of them are more significant prophetically than others. But the very place that Jesus was teaching, it, you know, about the ten virgins and, and the different things that were about the end times, two days before the Passover was up on the Mount of Olives. And you had three real facets of the Mount of Olives. You had the Gethsemane area. You had Bethphage, where the, where the Sanhedrin lived, which was the first figs, and that's a study in itself, which I don't know that we'll have time during the seminar to look at. And then on the other side, you had Bethany. Those were the three main facets of the Mount of Olives. So Bethany was the palms, the dates, the beginning points, the breakthrough, and how many great things happened there. You know, Jesus ascended there. Lazarus was raised from the dead there. That was there. The Sanhedrin was right in the center of this place. And they, they supposedly were jurisdicting what God would say, um, but they, they weren't living it. I mean, there was no life in it. And hence, that, that first figs that you had to manage it just right to get 
any kind of fruit. The, the, it was this, that latter harvest of the figs that was really the edible harvest. And I think that's interesting for us, too, as people who are given an, a measure from God of authority as being an Elijah, as being somebody who would be stewards of the mystery, somebody that would, would hopefully understand these things that God is showing. How does that kind of person, with the fig of understanding that God gives, how does that person process that so that it is a lively thing? It's a difficult thing. It can be done agriculturally, but it's difficult. That was Bethphage. It was the name of the city, and that's where the, the Sanhedrin were. But then you have Gethsemane, the place where, where lots of things could be processed and pressed, but mostly being on the Mount of Olives, olives were to come from there. That's where Jesus went in the, you know, can you not tarry with me one hour? That was, that's where he went. But you had those three facets there, the, the palm dates, you had the fig, the early figs, and then you had the olives. Those three were very important on that Mount of Olives. And I think, you know, you've got 10 virgins that run out of oil. Well, where would that fit? Mostly in Gethsemane. You have, you have an Elijah ministry that was responsible for training and representing and overseeing the things that God has shown as a steward. And then at the very beginning, that was, that was the break point. That was the beginning point. That was the palm tree. That's where you got the go-ahead from the Father. Those three things, maybe even prophecy, seal of fulfillment, are right there. And it's no surprise that when the Lord comes back, the Bible says that his feet are going to be at that Mount of Olives. It's going to split right in half. Why right in half? Because it's going to show, all right, I am the one that's in the midst. What the Father has wanted and your devotion to it to the end, here it is. It is fulfilled. But those three things are there. And, um, but for us... We're in, not, not to borrow this term again, but we as saints are in the middle of all of this, serving the Father. We must be those that decrease. We must live our lives prophetically to fulfill the will of the Father. And we must portray to the virginal ones that have to yield themselves to God to, to come into that marriage feast with lamps blazing. We can only hope that they will process this calling according to the mind of Christ and not according to the whims of being young. Nothing wrong with that. We should all stay young, no matter how old chronologically we may be. But all of these things interweave into the biblical narrative. And no matter which way you look at it, it says the same thing. But the heart of it all is that as he increases and as his prophetic purpose is depicted from the foundation of the world to now approaching the time when all things will be fulfilled, what Revelation 1.1 says, this is where the must is going to be shown. Both of those words are there. And, and overarching all of it is whatever is written in heaven, you, you might as well know that that's the authority to bind and loose. I think it's interesting, too, that this is a, a wonderful depiction of the deliverance ministry or in any conflict with the enemy. What he's going to look for is not your fancy shenanigans and all the things you learned at the last seminar. He's going to look, Jesus I know, Paul I know. How are you known? Are you functioning on behalf of the Father? Is this mountain in front of you standing in the way of what the Father has given? Because if it is, you, and not doubting in your heart, you can speak to that thing and move it out of the way. That's your heart of authority. But where it comes from is not by your musculature, but by you becoming, you must decrease. That's how Jesus ministered prophetically. That's the spirit of prophecy. That's the spirit of Elijah. And that's the spirit that should be being taught to any Elisha coming along. And that's really the heart of what Samuel began. I mean, if there was ever somebody 
who became what needed to become, as was mentioned again this morning, just bare, barely being weaned. I don't know if he had the appetite that, that Levi has. He'd ate those boys in Shiloh out of temple and, and tent. Um, but, you know, uh, he became what he was supposed to become. He became what the wimp, whisper in the night said. He became that one that was known as the seer and the prophet whose words from God were then taken and invested into others that not one of them would fall into the ground but would be brought into a teaching format that even the simplest of a person could understand and then begin to be. And then... They've not rejected you. They've rejected me. It's time for you to appoint a king. Okay, I'll become that. Probably the closest to that kind of adjusting of prophetic ministry was with Isaiah, who ministered all the way from Uzziah all the way through our buddy Hezekiah. And he changed with every one of them to fulfill what God wanted. That's your calling. That's our calling. And it's, it's needed very much so in, in these days. So, as God said to us a couple of years ago, okay, you're transitioning. You're going to transition. You've got to be changed. Well, is that not what this is? Is that not the must? It, it, God doesn't do what some have said over the years, which is always, and I've said this from the pulpit, has always irritated me. I remember there was one group that God was just pouring his heart out to, and I really felt that, of course, who asked me? Uh, we, we sewed into it, and we thought these folks can be really instrumental in so many ways for the kingdom. And then a couple things went wrong, and they were gone, and they told their people, okay, you've got to forget everything you learned over there. How can you forget everything you learn from the Scripture? It, that's just, that's not only wrong, that's disgusting. And I bless them. I'm just saying that viewpoint, when God changes you, he does not change what he's taught you in his word. He does not change your eternal identity. I mean, that's, that's what the, I think that's some kind of a, poetic mockery of the enemy today. Oh, you were born a woman? Oh, you really think you're a man? Well, you can become that. Just think right. Okay, you're a, you're a, you're a guy now. That's nuts. But that's the enemy saying, you know, I don't care what the Father put you here to do. You can become whatever you want to be, which is exactly what he did. And can you imagine that, that, that pompous hubris of the enemy he took Jesus to an exceeding high mountain, which was, was a real place and is a real place. I believe that the Lord has taken us there on a couple of occasions, but I didn't see a GPS setting. But a, a place where the enemy is, is, is trying to emulate the sides of the north. And he showed he showed. I'm sure that was something that he specifically depicted. I am the must here. Let me show you what I own. Interesting. We live in this spiritual dynamic right now. Every one of you. And all of these biblical principles you are functioning in, whether you know it or not, you are. And that's why, no matter what happens, every part of what God has said is going to be done. Not one jot or tittle of it is going to fade away. There's never going to be a time where the enemy tries some hijinks and God's saying, wait a second, I didn't write about that. Hold it now. You know, I didn't see that coming. I better, I can't add anything. Well, we'll just not say anything about it. Maybe people won't notice. No, every one of these factors that God has meticulously attempted to sow into our lives, even today, this understanding, which has been there all along, but the Spirit is highlighting this must is a must because it's so important. And as you study this in your devotions this week, 
remember that it essentially means what has God intended, what has he ordained. This has to be that way. And I love it. It gives, it gives a, new, uh, a, a new measure of emphasis within my spirit as I was reading through these verses where that, where that understanding of that word was, uh, was indicated. Um, you know, we think about must in our society. Oh, you must do this. If you're going to Paris, you must go there. Uh, we think it's a, it's a, a definitive uh, directive. You know, oh, you just have to do that. Or, or, or if you go there and eat, you must get this dessert. Oh, whew, it's an imperative for you. Uh, we understand what that means in our nomenclature. But when we come to this understanding, which when the divine author chose this word in that Greek society, everybody in the Greek society knew what that three-letter word meant. They all knew. when They grew up in heathenism. And they, they thought, well, the fates, the fates are, have given me life, and it just must be my fate. They, they, they directed it to a higher being. Well, there's no higher being than God. He overrules every other thing. And when the Spirit says must, he means it. So, for Elijah in the New Testament, John the Baptist, friend of the bridegroom, all of those are us. According to God's directive for this time, we're to raise up Elisha, who hopefully will process what God has shown from his word and not think some other way or, or pervert it or say, well, I'm going to do it my way. This is what all the cool ones are doing. You, you'll end up without, you'll, you'll be out of oil. You'll be in the right place at the right time and it'll be getting dark. But where's your oil? Where is it? You know, I'll say one more thing. It's only 1214. That's not the thing I was going to say. Um, Maybe that's all I should say. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all I'll say. But, you know, the, the, the interesting thing, though, even with this seminar coming with Rama, it's, it's not about us putting together a doctoral-level um, teaching program. Listen. We've tried that. What, what we've got to do is maintain that, but we've got to teach the young ones simple things of a deep level. And, and as they do them, then, they'll hopefully develop a hunger to know more. And that will be the way that we can get them in. So I'm already starting to, to list out, I, I would call it pneumaticos for dummies, but I probably would, inf would, uh, would uh, irritate some if I said that. But just simple flow patterns of some of the deep things that we know. I, I even thought about doing a spate of new bookmarks, but I don't think people really use books that much. Some of you do. You're purists. But most people just are reading things off a screen. How you bookmark that was something we have back there, I don't know. Um, but we're going into particularly Brazil, and we love those dear folks. But as in some of the places, there's one church that, that we go to, and there are hundreds of people there and, and we love these people. I don't mean anything. We're so blessed here in America to have the educational system, if it's still working in cities. Um, some cities I wonder about. But I'm not sure that a lot of those people have ever been to school. Or if they've been to school, their, 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 their learning patterns have not been developed. So as soon as we start talking about anything from a deep level, we lose them. And, you know, that's not what we're there to do. 
And so I think that the issue of, of Samuel starting these schools and then Elijah picking up and then Elisha picking up, it was, it was not to, to train the scribes and the doctors of the law at these places. It was to say, what happened here? How did God show himself here? How can you then, with the lyre and the sack butter, whatever you've brought, how can you depict that wherever you live, fulfilling what God has put you here to do? Now, that's a different framework. And the people that were in Bethel were different than the people that were in Jericho. But they had the same common principles, the same elemental understandings that operated throughout all of the places where the people of God lived. The people in Ramah were, had a different framework than the people that were in Gilgal. And, but, but the same principles would apply in the histemes that were there in those places. And, and that's the trick to be able to deduce why, what is the must of why you live here why has God sent you with the cross to this esteme point? Now, here are principles that are beheld by all of us from the Word. How do you function as an individual? How do you pray? Why do you lay on your face before God? What do you do with the cross? Those elemental things that are still very deep for most of the church. That's a sad statement. But these things, an idiot should be able to know. I mean... Honestly, otherwise I wouldn't know them. Uh, you know, the point, though, is, is that that's what was taught in these places. And, 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 and so, um, but with the identity of why do you live here and what happened in this place, why is Bethel so different than Gilgal? Why is Jericho so diff different than Ramah? What, what, what happened in those places? What responsibility do you have here? And that's part of what we are. So we've got to find ways, and, and that's probably the reason Jesus spoke in parables. Not only was it timeless, but some of those folks just needed to, to understand why they had life and how God wanted to meet with them. Um, so friend of the bridegroom, you become what you have to become. You must become that. And you must prepare things for the bridegroom to come. And in, in that narrative, you have these ten virgins who are being trained in the musterion of God who have the lamps in the darkened hour, will they do what is necessary according to what God has taught and according to what it means for them to give themselves to him and to think his thoughts? Will they do what's necessary? Or will they enter into that period and say, I'll just do it my way. Whatever seems right to me. What, my, my own fivefold thought. I, it's nothing you can do about them because the Scripture is the Scripture. But we've got to be, you know, arguably, and this really is the last thing. I won't tell you the time again. Arguably, the friend of the bridegroom should have been the one who appointed those ten virgins because the friend of the bridegroom was over all that proceeding. So you can process, who, who told those ten girls to be out there with lamps? Who put them in position? Probably it was that person. But for you, uh, as God gets us ready in these days to come, the things that are happening in your life are no surprise to God. He has given you authority. Every one of us need to overcome certain things as we become more of the likeness of what he needs us to be. We got to do it. And that, that's the essence. It's, again, Jesus in the boat. The storm's raging. Some of you are in the boat right now. 
and there are people around you that are telling you you're about to die. And care, don't you care that we're all perishing? Don't you care that you're perishing? What did Jesus say? I'm here to do the will of the Father. I'm not going anywhere until that's completed. So, peace, be still. <laughs> you need to say that in your life. And we need to get ready because um, things are getting interesting really fast. So he must increase, but I must decrease. If we were in, if we were in Sunday school and we had to memorize verse, Nancy and I would have fought over who got Jesus wept and who got this one. This is a short verse, but it's packed with meaning. And it's, it's a word for all of us today. It's a must. Father, I thank you for your kindness to us and for the way that your spirit continues to lead us in spite of ourselves in so many ways. I ask for your blessing to come upon your people in a new and unprecedented way. I ask that you would shower upon them your presence most of all but the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of your kingdom. Bring every one of your people into a point of peace. And let us not fear, but let us trust. And may our confidence be in you. And Lord, we continue to lay down pride, ambition, and any other thing that would indicate uh, something that is displeasing to you. Let us become what we need to become for you. Let us be willing to fulfill that place in the symphoneo of agreement before you that might be second chair to you. And it definitely is that. We love you, Father. And we pronounce this blessing now over our mission together and over every household, over every individual. And we thank you for it, Father, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, go out and do the things you must. See the things as God sees. Bind and loose appropriately and live triumphantly. Amen? All right. God bless you all. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in.